I'll tell you something that I learned about the FBI from those four individuals. Uh, I, I learned that they have, to, they have to carry their weapon with them even when they're off duty. If anybody ever came into Gross Point Baptist Church on a Sunday morning to cause trouble, they were in big trouble. The, the, uh, the woman, Sharon, was about, what, 5'2", maybe not even that tall. She was tiny, and she was also the best shot in the Detroit FBI. And uh, she'd drill them right between the eyes. But at any rate, it was interesting. This, this is what I learned. I had a lot of respect for those people. And I, as, you know, sometimes we, we wonder if our government workers are earning their money. And boy, I'll tell you what, you got a lot, of, a lot for your buck out of those people. The time that they gave and the kind of work they did was phenomenal. Anyway, back to the point here. We are now in the 27th chapter of the book of Acts, and uh, we're just coming down to the kind of the, the final uh, two chapters uh, ending our study of, in the book of Acts. And uh, I, I think we really have to read this chapter and then go back and, and pick some things out of it. So turn your, to your Bibles and let's begin. Heavenly Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to enlighten us as we study your word today. Speak to our needs, Heavenly Father, in this as, as we try to learn from the life of the Apostle Paul and his adventures at sea. Uh, bless our time with your holy presence, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adormitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much lost, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Winters are not very long in the Mediterranean, fortunately. Kind of like Nebraska, right? <laughs> now, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land, 
And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear. Thus they were driven along, since we were violently storm-tossed, and they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So you understand, they took down all the rigging so that the uh, ship wouldn't be driven at any kind of speed. And now they got ropes holding the thing together. Obviously, you're in trouble in this situation. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. May God bless this reading of his word. This is an interesting adventure story 
why is it here? It does tell us how Paul got to Rome eventually, and, and uh, it's going to happen in the next chapter when they make the last leg of the trip. It does tell us about God's protection, uh, but I think it does more than that. I think it's, it's a little bit like a pilgrim's progress. It's an allegory. I don't mean it didn't happen, but the events that unfold give us a picture of the situation of the Christian. Every one of us is on this ship in the storm. And there are certain things that emerge here that, that are very important. We have, first of all, we have the position of the Christian here. We have sort of the status of the Christian. Here's Paul. He's a prisoner. He's under this Roman centurion who's bringing him to Rome to stand trial. He is not the captain of the ship. He's not the centurion. He's not even one of the soldiers. He's not one of the free people on board the ship like Luke, who's writing this, who is along on this journey. He's a prisoner, probably in chains. He's not going to swim at all if he goes over. He's going right to the bottom. The position of the Christian is not one of high status, necessarily. It's not one of power. It's not one of wealth. It's one of weakness and of subjection. We like to think that it would be better for us if we were in a higher position. If only we had high public office. If only we had won that billion dollars in the lottery. We'd give a lot of it away. Not, a, not all of it, but most of it. You know, and so on. And so we could do a lot. If only we had more money. If only we had more power. If only we had more status in the eyes of the world. But God doesn't seem to be the least bit concerned about those kinds of things. And so when he came in human flesh, he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable and laid in a manger. And he grew up as an ordinary tradesman. He learned to be a carpenter. And so for the first 30 years or so of his life, he was just a guy who earned a living like everybody else. He didn't have a position of power. He didn't have a great wealth. He didn't have great power. And so it is with believers. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then Paul writing of himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 19 and 20. Speaking of God here, talking to him, he, that is, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? 
You see, in our human nature, speaking of us, as we started today, by the way, we need to change our way of thinking, right? Our minds need to be remade. In our human way of thinking, we lust after power and wealth and higher positions. And, and we think, now being a Christian, I mean, we use those things in the appropriate way. And indeed, Paul doesn't say everybody's weak according to worldly standards, but it's relatively where Most of us are weak according to worldly standards. And that's the way God wants it. Do you believe that? We need to change our thinking and understand this and say with Paul, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Because then the power of God will be at work in us and through us. And God will get the glory, not us. God's glory is safe with the lowly and the humble. That's the position of the Christian. That was the position of the Apostle Paul. And yet, as the story goes on, he becomes increasingly respected and even revered, especially as we get into the next chapter. Serving the Lord, we learn from this, is from a position of authority and power is not necessary. It is not necessary. In fact, it's highly unlikely. A few years ago, a long time ago now, in fact, I was thinking, when was that? It was almost 50 years ago. I attended a conference at the First Baptist Church in Oak Park, Illinois, and Dr. Carl Dudley uh, was speaking. That name probably doesn't mean anything to you. I'm surprised I remembered it. It's weird how the mind works, by the way. And he was talking about the situation in the Methodist Church. This would have been about 1970, no, 19, excuse me, 1982, 83. So that was more like 40 years ago. And at that time, at that time, it had just shifted, and there were more women in seminaries in the Methodist Church than there were men. And he said, so the next step is going to be there's going to be more women pastors in the Methodist Church than men. And he said, I want to warn you women of something. And there were many of them there that day. He said, you think that when you get into that position of power as a pastor, that it's going to be better. But believe me, there's, there, there, power is not what it's, what it's cracked up to be. Because with authority and power comes responsibility. And it's, it's up to you at that point. And, and you're going to find that maybe it was far better to be in a position of support and to be in the background. And, you know, maybe this is exactly what God is doing with all of us, most of us anyway. We're not in positions of power and of wealth because it's far better to be in a position of support. And then God's power does the work. Amen? Amen to that. So we have the position of the Christian. It's lowly, it's humble, it's weak in order that God gets the glory. Secondly, we have the message of the Christian. For example, in verse 9, since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous, even the fast was already over. Paul advised him, saying, sir, I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury and much loss. A word of warning, uh, but they didn't listen to him. Paul offered a warning based on according to 2 Corinthians 11.25, three previous shipwrecks. You ever think about this? Paul had a tough life. How many of you have been shipwrecked even once? <laughs> oh, only symbolically, right? Now, we've all been through shipwrecks, all right, more or less. But Paul had been through three actual shipwrecks, and, and it spent time floating on the open sea for a day and a night before he was rescued. So we don't even have those recorded. We've only got this one recorded. So he knew what a shipwreck was all about. He'd had experience. This reminds me of something. He wasn't listened to, right? 
he wasn't listened to because the, the centurion had a job to do. And he needed to get these prisoners to Rome. That was important. And then the ship owner had money to make. He needed to deliver this cargo. And, and the captain of the ship worked for the ship owner, and he wanted to fulfill the ship owner's desire to get the cargo through. And so these people were not risk-averse. They, they had something to be gained by taking a, res a, a risk. And, and Paul, who'd been shipwrecked, was not speaking from ignorance. He's not speaking like a layman. He's been there, and so he should have been listened to. And this reminds me of something. One day in, in Detroit, my friend Pete said, David, I want you to come out on the boat with me tonight. I'm having some of my neighbors over. Well, the boat was fairly new at that time for Pete. It was 48-foot Viking Sport Fisherman, uh, powered by two V12 uh, Caterpillar turbo diesels, uh, which got two and a half gallons per mile, by the way. That's a quite a boat. And so he had about 10 of his friends on there and me, and we were going across the lake. We were going to go up the Thames River in Canada, and there was a restaurant there where we were going to eat. And, and his, his wife had prepared some hors d'oeuvres on the boat, some beverages there, and so on. We were enjoying a beautiful summer evening. And Pete had the autopilot set, so he was not even up on the bridge. He was down below enjoying this. And as we're going along at about 22 knots, there was a sudden lurch, like this. And, and all of a sudden, the engines died, and eventually the boat came to rest. We had gone about 400 yards into the mud flats on the east side of Lake St. Clair. And suddenly dawned on P. He'd been out later in the day, and he changed the coordinates on the autopilot to go to a buoy. He just was testing it out, and he forgot to reset them. So we went right past the buoy and kept right on going, and then ended up in the mud flats. So there we were, this great big cabin cruiser stuck in the mud. And there we were, and, and you could feel once in a while a swell would come and we'd lift up a little bit off the bottom and then boom, settle back down into the mud again. We're stuck. And so some of his neighbors who also owned boats said, you know what, every time we move up, I think the wind is coming from the east, it's blowing us back to the channel, so we'll be all right. I'm up on the bridge and I'm looking at his very expensive radar display. And I can see the boat, it's even shaped like a little boat where we are, and I'm watching it in relation to the shore, and guess what? We rise up and go back down, and we weren't moving at all. So I listened to these guys talk for a while. I said, excuse me. I said, the radar says we're not moving at all. And they answered me back, because what would I know? They said, no, you can feel that we're moving. And I said, but the radar says we're not moving. No, but you can feel that we're moving. Guess who was right? The radar was right. A good 40 minutes passed, and we hadn't moved at all. And finally, one of them said, I don't think we're moving. <laughs> at which point, Pete made a call, a radio call to the Canadian Coast Guard, because we were on the Canadian side. And uh, two young men and a young lady, wonderful young people, came on board. And they sat with us until they were able to get a tow to come. And you need a really flat-bottom boat. And there was one way up the Thames someplace that had enough power to pull this thing around and get us back out on the channel. Uh, we never did get to eat dinner, and I think I got home about 1.30 a.m. as a result of this. Why would anybody listen to me? This is where Paul, I, I can relate to this story. Wait a minute, we're not moving up. Paul said, no, wait a minute. I've been out on the Mediterranean. I've been shipwrecked three times. This isn't going to end well. But he was ignored. The, this is the, 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 the message of the Christian, which is a message that says, you know what? You are headed the wrong way apart from Jesus. 
You're, you're going to get into the storms of life, and you're going to be ruined by those storms because you don't know the Lord. And people don't listen to us. What would we know, after all? What would a Christian know? What would even a pastor know? When, when that warning is given, uh-uh. No, no, I know better. I, I'm a worldly wise person. I've got it together. I have enough resources to make it through. Guess what? Guess what? Who's right? When, when we predict personal disaster for individuals who try to live without Jesus, we are right every single time. In one way or another, it is not going to end well for that person. And especially eternally, it is not going to end well. The message of the Christian is frequently rejected by people who are willing to take the chance that God is not going to judge them for their sin and their rejection of the gospel. Not much of a chance, frankly. So, here's the application. Did Paul stop? No. He continued to warn them, and he continued to speak to them. He did not give up. Do not be discouraged when you and or the gospel message is rejected. That's standard operating procedure. That does not make you a failure. Success in the witness to the gospel is in presenting the gospel. It's sharing the gospel when you have the opportunity. That's why we're doing evangelism training again. You all know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You know that. It, it, it isn't when somebody receives Christ. It's when you've presented it. It's up to God and the Holy Spirit to take care of the decision part. It's between them and that person, between God, rather, and that person, not, not you. But your job is to present it. Let's be relentless. Paul was relentless, even with this warning, but he was certainly relentless with the gospel. He never gave up. I remember reading about Bobby Richardson. I might have mentioned this in the evangelism class. Played second base for the Yankees back in the glory days in the 50s and 60s, and, and they, they said Bobby Richardson was so relentless with his testimony to Jesus, a guy would cruise into second base after hitting a double, and Richardson would slap the, you know, obligatory tag on him once he got the ball in, and then he'd say, the next thing, do you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior? Many professional ball players said, I heard about Jesus Christ from Bobby Richardson on second base in the middle of a major league ball game. Well, if you can do that, you can do it, right? John Paul XXIII, Pope John Paul XXIII, had, uh, gave an audience to Billy Graham. Or maybe we should say it the other way around. Billy Graham gave Pope John Paul XXIII an audience. But anyway, Graham was in Rome, and, and he was invited to see the Pope. And afterwards, somebody asked the Pope, how did that go? He said, it's very unusual for somebody to ask the Pope how he's doing in his walk with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Billy Graham was going to share the gospel with the Pope. You know, this is it. The message may be rejected. We may be dismissed personally, but we've succeeded if we share the message. Got it? That's it. So let's not be afraid of rejection. On to the next opportunity. Now we have the worldly fate of the Christian in verse 14. What happens? The storm hits a tempestuous wind. Euroquillo, I think it is, actually in Latin. A northeaster struck down from the land. So exactly what Paul said was going to happen, happened. They ran into bad weather. And so what happens is we suffer the consequences 
of the bad decisions that other people make in this world today. Wow, can any of you relate to that? Our government is making bad decisions. In the state of Minnesota, anyway, I don't know what it's like here in Nebraska, but in the state of Minnesota now, um, the other party is in control of both houses. Of, there's, not, there's only two, there's two in Minnesota. I know there's only one here in Nebraska. But the Senate and the House in Minnesota, both controlled by the same party. All progressives. So, so we're getting now a requirement that all school teachers have to sign this thing where they agree to teach all this stuff about gender or they can't get a license to teach. How can you as a born-again Christian, a believer in Scripture, teach in a public school now in the state of Minnesota? Because you're going to have to sign away on your religious beliefs. But that's the law. That's what they've done. What are going to be the consequences of that? You have to go along with this, this gender change stuff. You have to sign it. So, you know, you, you will encourage young people to choose another gender if they feel so inclined. And without telling their parents, by the way, Good grief, you have to ask their parents' permission for them to take an aspirin. You know that, don't you? But not to have a gender-affirming pills and surgery. No. Ridiculous. That's a bad decision. Uh, they make another. Now, and we're going to have legalized marijuana in Minnesota, of course. But we've already got legal, legalized gummy bears with the THC in them. Marijuana-laced gummy bears. That was snuck in into a budget bill. And you know what people said afterwards? We didn't know that was in there. What? What is wrong with the people that are running the state of Minnesota? You don't read the legislation? Well, it's a really long bill. Oh, okay. What else was in there? Everybody has to wear their underwear on the outside now? Was that in there too? That way we can check to see whether or not you're changing it every day? I don't know about these... That's a bad decision, but we're all along for the ride. These decisions have disastrous consequences. Do you know what happens? Grade school kids get hold, age kids or, or younger, get hold of gummy bears and eat a mouthful of them. This has happened all over the country because that's a great way to deliver, you know, the essence of marijuana. And, and you know, here's the, here's the deal. What are we assuming? That pot users act responsibly? Apparently, that's the assumption. No, they leave them out in a bowl, and the kids eat them, and they end up in convulsions in the emergency room. Some of them have long, I mean, hours long, even days long, psychedelic trips because their little brains get infected with this stuff. And it's a horrible experience. Do you think our legislators care? There isn't any evidence that they do. Now, the state of Minnesota allowed the, allowed the local municipalities to decide whether they could sell these laced gummy bears. And the city of West St. Paul stepped right up and said, yes, they could. I wonder if they're going to accept responsibility for the little kids that end up in ERs. And you can look this up. And it's happening all over the place because gummy bears are candy. And pot users are notoriously irresponsible. And they leave it out where kids can get it. Great, huh? We're along for the ride, though. All of these dumb decisions that are made, we're getting the consequences of those decisions. You get it? And we're stuck with it. Here's Paul who said, don't go. It's going to, I've been through that. No, they ignored him. And now he's in a shipwreck. He's out in the storm. We're along for the ride. But there's a difference. 
These idiotic decisions that are being made, which have disastrous consequences, leave worldly people with no hope. But we still have hope. Because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, not persecution, not nakedness, not peril, not the sword. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 8. And that was the Holy Spirit inspired. We still have hope. We're going to come out of this thing all right, even if it costs us our life and our finances are ruined and all the rest and our neighborhood goes down. But still, we're going to heaven where we're going to spend eternity. All this stuff will be a dim memory one day. We have hope. We suffer in a different way from worldly people do. So that's, that's the sort of the bad news and the good news. We are all along for the ride. But we have hope, whereas people in the world have no hope. Good old Matthew Henry had another application of this. They were trying to make it to a place called Fairhaven. Matthew Henry said, Fairhaven is not always safe haven. And the place of greatest pleasure is often the place of greatest peril. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Whatever happens in Vegas could send you to hell for eternity. The world thinks pleasure, that's great, we want to get to safe haven, fair haven rather, but that's not necessarily a very safe place to be. It wasn't certainly in this case. Another thing is they took a vote here. Everybody agreed except for the Apostle Paul we should go make this trip and they were wrong. So democracy does not ensure the right decision. Democracy isn't always necessarily the right way to... You know, if you left it up to the Israelites out there in the wilderness, what, where they should go, they would have voted, we're going to go back to Egypt. We, we miss the leeks and the onions and the free fish that we get out of the Nile. We're going to go back into slavery. That's the vote that people would take. We need to be very careful. I don't know. I guess you guys have seminary. Baptists, if I'm preaching to Baptists, you have to remind Baptists. Baptist churches are all run as a pure democracy. So the congregation can vote itself straight into hell if it wants to. And frequently, if left to their own will, it's just the way it is. It's not necessarily a biblical way of doing things. We want to we know this. As a congregation, what does Jesus want us to do? Not, do? not what do we want to do as a congregation. Is it, you see the difference? We're going to be looking for a pastor here very soon. We'll start, we'll start the process of actually searching for a pastor. We are not going to ask you, as a transition team anyway, I don't know what the pulpit committee will do, but as, as far as my advice goes, we're not going to ask you as a congregation, what kind of pastor do you want? That's an irrelevant question. The, the pastor that we want might not be the one that we need. What we want to know is, who does Jesus want to be the next pastor here? That requires a lot of prayer and a lot of humility and a lot of the Lord changing the way we think about things. Who does Jesus want us to have as the next pastor? Is that clear? Because we'd probably give the wrong answer. This is what happened here. We all have to live with the consequences of wrong answers. So let's try to find out what Jesus wants us to do because that will always be the right answer. Another takeaway from this particular worldly fate of the Christian is the Christian is not spared suffering. Sometimes we are by the grace of God. But not always. Sometimes we have to suffer along with everybody else, but with a difference. We rejoice in the hope 
of deliverance. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Yes, because the world is full of stupid people who make bad decisions, and we're all in this together, we are going to suffer from those bad decisions. But we do so rejoicing in hope. Amen? God's going to bring us through this. Now we have the perseverance of the Christian. Verses 27, or chapter 27, rather, verses 21. 26. And this is a whole bit. I, I won't read this whole bit again, but it's a whole bit about Paul assuring them there's not going to be any loss of life. You know, it's time to take some food and whatever. And he's giving a word of hope. So Paul remains hopeful and encourages others with his hopefulness. He just never gives up. He is the only cheerful Charlie on board because he's received assurance from the Lord that ultimately everything's going to be all right. Now, as you translate this spiritually here, it doesn't mean that everything on board ship is going to be all right. It means everything eternally is going to be all right in Christ. God will see us through. When, when Jesus says, not a hair of your head will be harmed, he doesn't mean we're not going to get smashed and burnt to the stake. He's talking about eternally. We're going to make it into glory, and all of these sufferings will be, will be forgotten. That's the promise in the book of Isaiah, by the way. All the things of this world will be forgotten. We got to, I mean, a billion years from now, who's going to remember this service? Well, maybe this sermon. <laughs> it was so long. At any rate, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. The perseverance of the Christian is to remain hopeful and to encourage others with our hopefulness. So rejoice and be hopeful in the midst of the storm. Other people are going to notice you're different in a good way. Then we have the preserving power of the Christian in verse 24. He said, the angel's talking to Paul, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. We have no idea how many times this has happened in the history of the world. It would have happened to Sodom had the angels been able to find ten righteous people in that town, but they couldn't. The world has no appreciation for what it means to have a few believers around, just salting the countryside with the righteousness of Christ. And others get to ride along then and be preserved, at least given another opportunity to receive Christ as Savior. Because that's why God keeps people alive. He keeps the ungodly alive so that they might finally come to repentance and come to know Christ as Savior. So God grants Paul his life and the life of 276 others with him, even those sailors who wanted to abandon ship and leave everybody else to drown, even the soldiers who wanted to kill all the prisoners so that none of them would escape, even those people get saved and have another opportunity to come to Christ. God grants mercy for the sake of the elect, and so be salt and life and light. Mark 13, 20. If the Lord had not cut short the days, that is, the days of tribulation, 
No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And other people get to ride along with that blessing from God. So we have the preserving power of the Christian. And finally, we have the example of the Christian. Paul is just a great example. Verse 25, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Those encouraging words. Also, oh, let's take uh, verses 31 and 33. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then verse 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today's the 14th day you've continued in suspense without food, haven't taken nothing. So he urged you to eat something. So Paul is continuing to be a good example. Although rejected, he continues to offer encouragement and advice to the sailors, to the soldiers, to all who are on board. Oh, how are you doing with that? The world's an evil place. There are bad people out there. Maybe we just let them all go to hell. Hmm? No. Let's not stop being a good example of being cheerful in the midst of suffering, of sharing the message of the gospel with people who are near to hear, hear it. The ship of this world is in the grip of a mighty storm, and it will be totally destroyed one day. Like Paul, we have to serve in spite of our humble place, offering admonishment and warning, although it goes unheeded, suffering together with the lost, but with hope, sharing encouragement in the midst of the storm, preserving life by our very presence, persevering though reviled and objected and rejected, exemplifying what it means to follow Jesus tirelessly, relentlessly, proclaiming salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the calling that you've given us to be light and salt in this mixed-up world. Lord, it's frustrating for us sometimes. It's frustrating to feel belittled and, object and rejected when what we hold to is a reasonable truth and at least a semblance of reality and rationality. Help us, Heavenly Father, to rem remember the example of the Apostle Paul, who continued to be hopeful in the midst of the storm, who continued to encourage and to make suggestions and to be a witness, even though he was rejected. Our Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here who needs to come in out of the storm and into faith in Jesus Christ. May this be the morning of repentance from sinfulness and going their own ways into trusting Jesus and what you've done for them on the cross and to giving you control of their lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your transforming power that you can change our hearts and you can change our minds. We give you the glory through Christ our Lord. Amen.